This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Two years ago today, the last American military planes left the Kabul airport, completing the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. The U.S.'s top diplomat in Afghanistan, Ross Wilson, was on the final flight out. It's very somber, absolute quiet. Everybody was utterly exhausted, and everybody is thinking about what we'd left. He had been at the airport for weeks, one of the only safe havens from the Taliban's takeover. He described the chaotic scene. Afghan mobs essentially got onto the tarmac, thousands or many, many hundreds at least, just streaming through airport security checkpoints. Those soldiers, they'd abandoned their post. You could just walk in, and Afghans did. We didn't know who they were. Uh, We didn't know if they had weapons. Virtually from the time of my arrival on the afternoon of the 15th to close to the 30th, we got, I got, my staff got, senior military people got, mid-level military people got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of phone calls, texts, emails every hour. That's from the podcast In the Room with Peter Bergen. After the break, host Peter Bergen and Breshna Musazai join us as we take a look back on the U.S. war in Afghanistan after two years. We also look closer at what's happening in the country now. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into the conversation and welcome our guests. Peter Bergen joins us from New York City. He's the host of In the Room with Peter Bergen. He's also the vice president of the left-leaning think tank New America. Also with us to talk about what happened in Afghanistan in August 2021 and what's happening now is Breshna Musazai. She's an Afghan refugee who fled her home in 2021. She survived a Taliban terrorist attack in 2016 at her university in Kabul. Thank you both for joining us. We also reached out to the State Department to provide a representative, but did not get a response in time. Breshna, you arrived at the airport on August 17th with your brother to leave Afghanistan. What was the scene like when you arrived? When I left the home, uh, the city was very different that day because I didn't see many people. Kabul is uh, is a very crowded city, but that day... Uh, I see very few people on the streets. But when I got closer to the airport, everybody was outside the airport and trying to get inside the airport. And there I saw the Taliban. And I was too scared to see them. 
We heard from Ross Wilson. He described his plane ride out of the country in August 2021. What was the plane ride like for you when you escaped your home country just over two years ago? Um it was that day was totally different. Even the airport, like people couldn't get inside the airport through the main gate, and the planes were not uh, the commercial planes. When I went inside the airport, first for me it was uh, not that hard that day because everything was under control. Uh, but I had to stay like for ten hours to wait for a plane because there were no planes, and the plane was not a regular like commercial plane. It was like a military plane. You managed to secure exit from Afghanistan for you and your brother, partially because you were a known survivor of a 2016 Taliban attack. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But what was your reaction to learning that the Taliban had taken over Kabul? I was in a complete shock because... I didn't expect that to happen. Nobody expected this to happen because it was. It is. It didn't even. It doesn't even make sense to, uh, f- for the Taliban to uh, for us to 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 see that the Taliban took the country only in a few days, without any resistance from the other sides. So I was in a complete shock, and I couldn't believe that this is happening. Peter, we mentioned the attack on American University of Afghanistan. This is something you covered in your reporting. It's where Breshna was wounded. What was the significance of that event? Well, the Taliban went into the American University of Afghanistan and they um, they shot everybody they could. This was in 2016. Fifteen people uh, were killed, staff and students. Uh, Breshna was uh, uh, severely wounded and um, they left her for dead and she played dead and uh, luckily she survived and she was taken to Texas for uh, extensive medical treatment and then she went back to university and she graduated which I think um, you know says a lot about her personality and character um, but you know the fact that there was a place where women were being educated and the fact that it had the word American made it a very inviting target for the Taliban and now of course uh, as you said in the intro um, you know they banned um, girls from school about the age of twelve, and and any women from going to university. And I, I was in Afghanistan the first time around when the Taliban controlled it, and in some ways I think they're more radical this time around. I mean they've recently banned beauty salons, which was one of the few places that women could kind of gather, um, sort of outside the home. Uh, they've really constricted uh, the space for women to do anything. Um, uh, one of the few jobs women can do in Kabul, the capital, is cleaning female toilets, uh, according to the mayor of Kabul. So you know, the situation is, is, is pretty dire. Hmm. Breshna, you arrived in the U.S. in March of this year after having spent a year and a half in a refugee camp in Qatar. What have the past two years been like for you? The time that I spent in Qatar, as uh, especially in the camp, it mostly affected my uh, health, my both physical and mental health, uh, mental health, because for me, it was, I couldn't forget what was, what happened on uh, August 15. And because I was staying as a refugee for uh, like, like, uh, like in the camp, in the, uh, so it was reminding me about the incident. I, I realized that I really need to 
start uh, my life or do something in life. But because I was stuck there, it was affecting me uh, like very badly, especially my mental health. What kinds of support have you had since arriving in the U.S.? What has your experience been like so far? So far, it's good, especially because I'm with my family. Uh, I'm, I'm happy. And But when I arrived, the first thing that my American fr- friend did for me is to, to get me a free medical treatment uh, in Texas. I went to Texas uh, to, to make sure uh, that there is nothing uh, very serious about my leg because I was having a very bad leg pain in when I was in the uh, camp. So this was the first thing. I, uh, but uh, the, the good thing is that there was nothing uh, serious, and, and I'm happy about it. And your leg is where you were wounded in that Taliban terrorist attack in, in 2016. Speaking out about your experiences comes at some level of, of risk, Rashna. You still have family in Afghanistan, including a sister and nieces who are no longer going to school. Why is it important for you to tell your story? Because it's it's just not my story. For me, it's the story of every Afghan, especially Afghan girls. And I want the world to know that the, what is happening with women in Afghanistan. Like, when I was interviewed, like, years back after my attack, people would ask me about me, and I would tell them that it's not only my story. There are many people, there are many girls whose stories are not heard, but I'm one of the lucky ones that my story is heard. There are many. That's why I want the world to know, because Afghan women right now really need the help and support of the world. That's Breshna Musazai, a refugee from Afghanistan who fled the Taliban takeover in August 2021. Breshna, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. And you can hear more of Breshna's story in Peter Bergen's podcast, In the Room with Peter Bergen. In just a few minutes, we talk to an activist who is continuing to educate girls in Afghanistan despite a ban from the Taliban. She just returned from the country a few weeks ago where she can only visit by being smuggled inside. Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit SAATVA.com slash NPR and save an additional $200. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing, like not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the discussion and add another voice. Joining us from Wellesley, Massachusetts, is Pashtana Durrani. She's a social and political rights activist and founder of Learn Afghanistan. Pashtana, welcome to 1A. 
Thank you for having me. Tell us about the work your organization has been doing in the two years since the Taliban takeover. Uh, well, when the Taliban took over, the first thing we knew was clear that they're not going to let the girls go to school uh, because that's what they have been doing for the past two decades is burn the schools or target the girls. Um, so I think after 30, uh, 30 days of the Taliban takeover, we were able to restart our first uh, underground school. And since then, we have been uh, functioning in five different regions. Now we function in three different regions and we educate girls from grade 7 to grade 12. Yeah. Peter, you interviewed a Taliban spokesman, Zalehu Bam Mujahid, in December of last year for your podcast. Let's hear a bit of that. First, women's rights will not be lost. They will not be discriminated against. We will proceed according to Islamic rules. We have not said that they can't go to school. We have tried to pave the way so that they can go to school with confidence. Families should also be sure that their daughters can study peacefully. But it's now a year and a half later. What's your plan? I mean, do you have a date this will happen? I cannot make this prediction because the work of the Ministry of Education is separate. I do not know how far they have come in completing their plans, but it is necessary. The day will come when girls will go to school. Peter, what was your reaction to hearing the Taliban insist that the ban on girls' education is temporary? <laughs> well, you know, <clears throat> temporary could mean a long time in, in, uh, for this, I mean, you know, as, as um, it's clear from the period from 96 to 2001, uh, they basically had the same policies. Uh, you know, I think there was a big mistake by Americans uh, who some Americans believed the Taliban would moderate once they returned to power, that they'd want international recognition, they would change their policies. Uh, that is, I think, a, a mistake known as mirror Im- imaging in the intelligence community, which is assuming that other people just share your views. Uh, the Taliban hadn't fought for, tw- for 20 years to kind of impose a Swedish democracy on the country. They thought they fought to impose a, a misogynist theocracy, and that's what we have. And, you know, what they've done is both predictable and unsurprising, and unfortunately there was a lot of wishful thinking about the Taliban when the United States was then engaging with its, uh, you know, uh, withdrawal agreements with the Taliban, that somehow they would moderate. Pashtana, you said it was not at all surprising to you that the Taliban banned girls older than the sixth grade from attending school. As you go back to the country and you hear from women and girls there, what are they saying about this idea that the ban is, is temporary? Do they believe that? Oh, no, nobody believes them. Nobody believes in the Taliban. They are just held hostage. They don't have any way around it or through it. So they are just bearing it. Nobody believes the Taliban. It's funny when you hear the Zabiullah and he says, oh, we are, it's temporary. It's funny how they can come up with bans every week, but they cannot come up with a single smart solution in two years. And at the same time, his daughters are studying in Doha. That's not a bad thing. Uh, other people's daughters are studying in Islamabad, the Taliban's daughters. But somehow the girls of Afghanistan should bear because um, they, they want to go to school. Cool. So for me, it's not surprising because that's what they did. That's what their propaganda was, at least in the South, that school is a Western concept and we need to bomb it and we need to target young girls who are just trying to seek education. So it was not at all surprising. Peter, give us an understanding of the other limits on women's rights that the Taliban has implemented. 
Well, I mean, basically the right to work, except in extremely limited circumstances that involve, say, a female doctor treating female patients. Um, um, and so, uh, but, you know, the, there are other issues with the, with the Taliban that I think are worth pointing out. I mean, this is, Afghanistan is, you know, made up of several ethnic groups. The Pashtuns are not the majority, but the plurality. Um, but if you look at the, the the Taliban government, it excludes Uzbeks, Hazaras, and Tajiks, which make up you know more than fifty percent of the population, with you know with some very minor exceptions. And then if you also look up at the makeup of the cabinet, astonishingly, thirty five cabinet or sub-cabinet officials in the Taliban are under UN sanctions. I mean, this is a very large number. And the Minister of the Interior is himself part of the leadership council of al-Qaeda, according to the United Nations. I think the first time in history that somebody who's part of al-Qaeda has actually got a senior cabinet official position. So the women's rights are certainly a, a very big issue, but there's also the issue of their um, basic exclusion of all uh, other ethnic groups from any positions of real power, and then of course there are links to you know every jihadi group. Uh, it, you know the UN says there are twenty jihadi groups in Afghanistan. Members of Al Qaeda have positions in the administration. Members of the Al Qaeda are drawing welfare payments from the Taliban, according to the UN. Pashtana, as I said, your organization is continuing to educate girls in Afghanistan who are in grades seven to twelve, despite the Taliban. What safety measures do you have to take to do this work? I mean, for us, it's our communities. We don't go into different provinces and tell people, oh, we have money and you need to educate your daughters and we will fund the school. For us, you have to come to us. You have to tell us you're committed to your daughter's education. And once that happens, they provide us with the space and that space is the surety. And at the same time, they are the ones who uh, introduce the teachers and the students. And that's where we provide with the laptops, with internet, with teaching content, with ensuring that the teachers are paid um, and the students get stipends for whatever resources that they need. Um, it's definitely a partnership, but the security is definitely provided by the communities who do know that their daughters are going to the school, their daughters are teaching in these schools. Um, and even now, like in Kandar, we just moved our school and it was just made possible because of the community. And it's our fourth time that we are moving. So, yeah. I want to take a step back, Peter, to February 2020, and that's when the Taliban in the U.S. under President Donald Trump signed a deal that set the terms for the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. You spoke to General David Petraeus in January this year. He's the former U.S. commanding general in the country. I think that ranks with the worst diplomatic agreements in our history. We gave the Taliban what they wanted. Uh, We're leaving. The only thing we got in return is a promise that they wouldn't attack us sort of on the way out. What were the exact terms of that agreement, also known as the Doha Accords? I mean, the terms were that the Taliban would enter into good faith negotiations with the elected Afghan government to, for some kind of power sharing agreement. The other, the other terms were, you know, they would separate themselves from Al Qaeda, uh, that they also wouldn't attack American troops on the way out. As General Petraeus pointed out, you know, they they did hold to that part of the agreement, which made perfect sense because, after all, they. They wanted the Americans to leave, so it wouldn't make much sense to attack them on the way out. In terms of good faith negotiations with the Afghan government, uh, they did not do those. Uh, They had no intention of entering into some kind of power-sharing agreement. And the fact that 400 members of al-Qaeda are living in Afghanistan, according to the UN, the fact that one of the the Minister of the Interior is a member of al-Qaeda kind of speaks for itself. So they haven't separated. And also, of course, you may recall, Jen, that 
about a year ago, the Ayman al-Zawari, the leader of al-Qaeda, was killed in a U.S. drone strike in downtown Kabul. He was living there with the knowledge of some Taliban and, and uh, senior officials. What did you learn from speaking to people who were involved in making that deal? How are they reflecting on it now? Well, the, one of the principal negotiators was uh, Lisa Curtis. She was the top White House official on Afghanistan. And when Ayman al-Zawari was killed in downtown Kabul, she tweeted that the peace agreement with the Taliban wasn't worth the paper it was written on. I mean, she is absolutely, um, you know, angered, disappointed, unhappy about what has happened. Uh, she considered resigning on a number of occasions. In the end, she didn't. Uh, but she felt that the uh, negotiation uh, was akin to somebody going to a car sales lot where you say, you know, I'll pay full sticker price, that's the Americans, and negotiate from there, which is basically we went in, we gave the Taliban every, everything they wanted, and we got very little in the return. Pashtana, the U.S. did not demand that women's rights be upheld by the Taliban during negotiations. Do you think that would have made a difference for the women and girls of Afghanistan today? Yeah, I mean, people who served in Afghanistan, they kept on saying that we want to stay and ensure that girls stay in school. Um, But the policymakers or the U.S. leadership didn't believe it. And that's one of the reasons I think I'm not any more disappointed, but hurt that uh, the U.S. had all the leverage. The U.S. knew that what they could do and they still didn't want to do it, you know, and they still continue to not do it. Uh, I mean, they have appointed special envoys, but what have been done so far? So for me, it's at this point, it's just hurtful. But at the same time, U.S. had the power, has the power. What they want to do it or what they intend to do with it is a completely different story. We're going to head to a quick break, and we'll hear more from you and our guests in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. By the end of this message, two people will be told they have cancer. Yes, every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. But by the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. A gift of any amount to the American Cancer Society can help those facing cancer get free rides to care or a free place to stay closer to treatment. Donate today at cancer.org. On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we have very important people on our show and then ask them about very unimportant things. Here's U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Uh, We are also reliably informed that among your enthusiasms, in addition to macroeconomic policy, is mobile games. Uh, There's some truth in that. There's some truth in that. Join us for the NPR podcast that considers all the other things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Let's get back to the conversation. In April 2021, President Biden gave a speech announcing his plan to end what he called America's forever war. Peter, you spoke to Taliban spokesman Zalehu Mujahid in December about President Biden's announcement. When President Biden won the election, we suspected that he might insist on continuing the war. But when he announced that he was withdrawing his forces from Afghanistan, it was a source of joy. Peter, what did you learn about how President Biden and why he, he came to this decision? Well, I think the, the why is a really good question. And, um, you know, as Pashtuna indicated earlier, he uh, 
when he was vice president, uh, he was you know skeptical about uh, the troop surge that President Obama was considering that he implemented in 2009. He was always a skeptic about what could be done. Uh, but he turned from a skeptic into a kind of somebody who wanted to just pull out entirely. And I, you know, he was advised against it by General Mark Milley, his uh, senior military advisor, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said the 2,500 troops in Afghanistan were enough to keep the Taliban at bay. 2,500 troops, by the way, when you think about the size of the U.S. military, which is 2 million service um, servicemen and women, um, active duty, reserves, guard, national guards, you know, it's a very small number. And, you know, we still have 20, 25,000 American troops in, in, in Korea, keeping the peace between North Korea and South Korea, which they've been there for 70 years. Uh, the war is not formally over. It's an armistice. It's not a peace agreement. So the idea that somehow we couldn't keep these troops in place, I think, was a mistake. Uh, he, uh, President Biden was advised against it. Uh, he ignored that advice, I think, because he sort of kind of suspicion of uh, American military advice that, that went back to the time that he was having these, these debates in the Obama cabinet. Uh, and he went through with, with the withdrawal with, and you know, basically the predictable things happened. Explain a little bit more about that suspicion as you described it. Well, I mean, he certainly felt he certainly seemed to have scar tissue from these debates in the Obama cabinet in 2009. He was advocating for what was then called counterterrorism plus, essentially not having a big surge of troops, having a smaller number, a smaller footprint uh, in Afghanistan. And I don't think that was necessarily the wrong argument. Uh, I think certainly we could have sustained a longer term commitment with a smaller footprint, particularly if we said that we were planning to stay there sort of indefinitely. Uh, we continue to be in countries around the world, keeping the peace in one way or another. Um, and that we, we, were, we, we were doing that with the invitation of the Afghan elected Afghan government. Uh, but I think he, he had a suspicion of, of, of military advice. He always sort of felt that the military was going to try and up the ante in Afghanistan. And, you know, he unfortunately went through with this, uh, with this withdrawal plan that, you know, also in fairness to President Biden, it was a withdrawal plan that had been completely cooked up by the Trump administration. He just simply implemented it. Uh, but I think both administrations share a great deal of blame here for a completely unforced er- error. Well, in a speech on August 16th, 2021, the day after Taliban fighters entered Kabul and the Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani, fled the country, President Biden deflected blame. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. Peter, how do those who served in the U.S. military respond to President Biden's claim that Afghans were not willing to fight their own war? Well, General David Petraeus told us in our podcast uh, our episode about this, he said he was very offended by this remark and pointed out that 16 times more Afghans had died in the war than, uh, you know, U.S. and allied troops. 66,000 Afghan police and soldiers had died in the war. Uh, around 4,000 American and allied troops had died around died in the war. Of course, all of these deaths are all tragedies. But the fact, you know, it's simply not true that the Afghans wouldn't fight. They they. They fought for as long as they could, but when they saw that the United States was pulling the plug, that they would have no um, air support, they would have no medevac, that they couldn't be uh, reinforced, that you know there was a collapse of confidence, and, and, and that happened very quickly. And Afghans have been through 40 years of war. They want to survive to fight another day if they can. So if the situation looks absolutely hopeless, they will put down their weapons, which is what they did. Pashana, what was your reaction to President Biden's claim that Afghan forces weren't willing to fight for themselves? I mean, 
<clears throat> Where was President Biden for the three months when we were under siege in Kandar and the uh, forces were fighting? Where was he? Was he watching even the news? Because that's where they were fighting. When Arganda was being taken over, they were fighting. Um, but then the support didn't came for them. And it's just funny how when we were fighting in the 80s, we were fighting and they were um, bringing us to the White House and they were putting us on TVs and shows. Um, and when we were fighting in 2001, my father included, then it was a good thing. But now in po in 2020, when they were fighting, but they were not given the help, when they were not given the resources, then all of a sudden they were not fighting. It's just how uh, it shows that for the U.S., when we are useful, we are fighting. And when we are not useful, then we are not fighting. Um, I'm definitely not a big fan of uh, President Ghani. Never uh, want to say that, oh, he was the right person. But the forces fought. He, they fought every day, every night without food. I remember we, when we were under siege for three months, we would get these videos from all these different districts where they didn't have food, ammunition for days. And the Taliban would come and take over the space and shoot them. And nobody responded to all of those things. And nobody was seeing that. So for me, sometimes it's... Because my family has been in military. My cousins have been in military. My cousins, my uncles have been in the police. So for me, it does hurt me when people don't accept their sacrifices. The fact that my tribe alone lost 2,300 men to this war and their widows, their orphans are tortured today and nobody takes notice of that. That is hurtful. And Biden will never understand that. Pashtana, you said you're, you're not a fan of President Ghani. What role do you see Afghan leadership playing here? Do you lay any responsibility at their feet? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I have always been the loudest person when it comes to corruption, when it comes to their lack of ability to lead properly, when it comes to the fact that they were not even... I mean, President Ghani was appeasing the U.S. government so badly that he left... 5,000 terrorists in the country openly just because he wanted to play uh, president. How how dumb can you be? So for me, I definitely don't have any... Um, I wouldn't say that the Afghan government is not at uh, a blame here. They are to blame. Um, but the bigger role was played by the U.S. because they controlled all the agreement and they were the ones who could have forced something. Whereas on the other end, yes, the government was corrupt. Yes, they partied all night. Yes, they didn't want to take any serious measures and they didn't even want to support um, the army and the military that was fighting day and night. They wouldn't even send resources because they were so busy partying. So for me, both parties are to blame and both of them enabled the Taliban to win. Peter, in, in your podcast, we hear a, a common refrain around shared blame, shared responsibility. What did you learn about the complexity of how people are thinking about that responsibility two years later? Well, I think, you know, Jay, uh, President Kennedy, after the Bay of Pigs, said, you know, um, success has 100 fathers and, and failure has none. So, um, you know, there's a lot of blame to go around. Um, and, um, you know, Afghan leaders, including people we spoke to in the podcast, say, you know, we, we do share responsibility. I mean, and as Pashtuna says, I mean, there's a lot of anger against President Ghani because he just left. I mean, and there's comparisons to what President Zelensky did, which is stay and ask for ammunition. Uh, you know, President Ghani also, you know, in his defense, is, was well aware that the last time the Taliban came to power, they 
executed the previous president of, the United, of, of, of Afghanistan in a very public and terrible manner. Uh, and so I'm sure he had that image in his mind. The fact is he didn't stay. And he was not, he was a technocrat. He was not, he, he didn't appoint people in his cabinet who actually had a lot of national security experience. They tended to replace some of the generals in the field with loyalists as opposed to people who could get the job done. And it turns out that Hamid Karzai, who also had his problems with the United States and vice versa, was kind of a more adept retail politician, which is probably what Ghani needed to be to hold everything together. In the end, the United States pulled the plug. Anybody who was the Afghan president would have had a real problem at that point. Pashtana, what responsibility do you think the U.S. has towards Afghanistan today? The U.S. has the responsibility to aid negotiate the terms when it comes to schools, when it comes to women rights, when it comes to political women rights, and then social rights. And also at the same time, people who work in the military and army who are now on the run, their protection should be guaranteed. All of this is a U.S. responsibility. I wish they understood that. That's Pashtana Durrani. She's a social and political rights activist and the founder of Learn Afghanistan. Also with us, Peter Bergen, the vice president of the think tank New America and host of the podcast In the Room with Peter Bergen. Peter Pashtana, thanks to you both. And just another note that we did invite the State Department to participate in this conversation, but we did not hear back. I want to share that resilience resource page from Afghan Evac, uh, that website once again. It includes a hotline for Afghans who have been resettled. The number is 1-800-615-6514. 1-800-615-6514. It's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week in Dari, Pushto, and in English. Today's producer was Avery Jessa Chapnick. And this program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This advertisement comes from our paid sponsor, Fundrise. High interest rates mean that real estate assets are available at a discount compared to previous valuations. The Fundrise flagship fund plans to expand its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. Add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio at fundrise.com NPR. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund before investing. Read the prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.